Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sadiq Khan set for landslide victory, winning second term as London Mayor. Open City trustees win job to design £8 billion Thamesmead redevelopment. Serpentine Pavilion criticised over unsustainable concrete foundations. And neo-Bankside residents take Tate Modern to the Supreme Court. My name is Zoe Cave and I'm Head of Projects at Open City. And I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My special guest this week is Owen Hathley. Owen is a writer, journalist and author. Welcome to the show. Our first story has appeared throughout the national and local media and it is of course this week's London mayoral election. As polls have shown throughout the election campaign, Labour incumbent Sadiq Khan is set to win a landslide victory, launching him into his second term as mayor of the capital. A last-minute survey by Opinion found Khan was first choice for mayor among 48% of Londoners, compared with just 29% who prefer his Conservative rival, Sean Bailey. Tailing them at 8% and 7% are Liberal Democrat Louisa Porritt and the Green Party's Sean Berry, respectively. Considering the second preference votes as well, the poll indicates Khan's lead could stretch to give a final winning margin of 63% to 37%. This would be the second biggest win in the history of mayoral elections in the capital, coming second only to Khan's 31-point triumph over Zach Goldsmith in 2016. So, Owen... This election seems like a done deal. No one is predicting that Bailey will be able to close the gap. If we can make the assumption that Khan goes on to win, what do you think we can expect to see in his second term? Obviously, uh, Sadiq Khan's landslide victory is not going to take anyone by surprise. But given the history of London for the last few decades, in some ways that should itself be surprising. He's managed to be be a sort of shoo-in almost from the start without really advocating much that he'd, that, that he'd change. Generally, sort of slightly watered-down version of the kind of thing Labour was standing on nationally in 2017, of sort of Green New Deal, great investment in social housing. Um, and again, I think these are things that are kind of encouraging or they don't generally go far enough. The kind of decarbonisation that he's promising simply isn't possible while building the Silvertown Tunnel at the same time. Um, and you know, I, I you know, I'm a postal voter, and I have already voted for 
Sadiq Khan, but there was definitely a, a, a level of disgust as I did so because of that tunnel, which I think is a, a disastrous project, which I, I kind of like to think just the, the scale of the crisis London's about to move into means it won't happen. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think what, what we're likely to see, given the size of the mandate that he's going to have and given the hostility he's going to face from the government, um, he's going to be faced with the question of whether or not he runs a radical mayoralty or whether he runs a kind of lame duck mayoralty in which he's in power and name only. Um, and obviously I've got some hopes for the uh, the former. Um, I think there's enough popular support and kind of um, and anger in London that would make that possible. So a recent YouGov poll suggests that the Conservatives are enjoying about 44% support across the UK, which is 11 points more than Labour. However, London appears to be leaning more and more towards a Labour city. Why is London so different from the rest of the country? Um, and sort of tagged onto that is understanding that Greens are also doing well. Does this signal different priorities for London? And I suppose if I could just sort of add on, how does Sadiq's kind of non-confrontational approach sit with this general leaning of Londoners? It's, it's, it's a complicated thing insofar as, you know, obviously in 2008 and 2012, a plurality of, well, majority after second preferences of Londoners voted for Boris Johnson, you know, the current Conservative Prime Minister. So it's kind of, um, you know, London politics is generally kind of like an inner London that, te- that, that tends left and an outer London that swings between Labour and the Tories. And that's pretty much how it's been since the 1930s. You know, it's very well established. There's kind of two explanations people usually come to, and I think they kind of, in many ways, are quite complementary, which is culture war and economics. So if one can kind of discount the culture war thing, which I think definitely is happening, like people in London are alienated by, you know, um, the 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 kind of racism and flag waving that's been so endemic for the last few years um i think you can boil the explanation down to housing like housing 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 and that that, you know every british city faces this problem but none of them as intensely as london that that housing is simply not affordable um, the degree of socially rented housing has, um, you know, even though Khan has got to build more of it than previous mayors, is still vastly lower than what we need. Rents are outrageous. Before the pandemic happened and, and people started to kind of be, uh, you know, kind of um, briefly rehoused in hotels, the level of rough sleeping was, you know, shocking. And, you know, that these, these things are just a part of everyone's life in London. And basically, my argument is that in 2015, Labour run, you know, Ed Miliband will we'll have rent controls in our, in our manifesto. And, you know, that's kind of made London pretty hegemonic for Labour. I think it can't go on forever because you can't constantly promise that you're going to sort out rents without actually sorting out rents. And you can't constantly promise to build more social housing while, while building only, an, only a trickle of it. But I think that's the reason for that support. This sort of holds to varying degrees, but where it doesn't hold is in a lot of the smaller towns and, you know, kind of formerly industrial areas that have been swinging to the right. 
um, particularly not among pensioners who have been overwhelmingly the, the, the drivers of that swing to the right. These are generally people that don't have to worry about housing costs and they don't have to worry about the labor market. Looking at, at, at Sean Bailey's kind of slight rise in the polls in the last weeks, I think owes more than anything else to a lot of Labour voters not being particularly enthused about going out to vote. Um, but, you know, the, the, this, is, this has been the case for a long time. You know, in the last three general elections, London overwhelmingly voted Labour, overwhelmingly voted Remain in the referendum. And, you know, that, that, that I expect to continue. Just to drill down a bit more into Khan's manifesto, one of the key issues for many voters is affordable housing. And in Sadiq Khan's manifesto, he has sketched out plans to create, to create a city hall owned development company to build affordable homes on land owned by the GLA. Do you think this could be a genuine solution to dealing with the housing crisis? Is this sort of is this the sort of revolutionary thing we need to see? Or is it still, as you said, this quite like watered down, non-confrontational version? I think the devil's in the detail. And this kind of model of um, the kind of municipally owned development company has been used for a while by a lot of London councils. And, you know, the plus side of it is that there has been more social housing built than there was under Johnson, but also than under Livingston. And the kind of the model that I think they were they, they were kind of um, deriving this from is Croydon. Um, was one of the most influential of those. And, and Croydon, of course, was the earliest sponsor of uh, public practice. That model, if we're dealing with the GLA saying, on our land, we are going to build 100% socially rented housing to people on the socially rented waiting list, I would be absolutely all for it. But when people talk about social housing or affordable housing, there's often a sort of vagueness about what this actually means. What this could mean is on our land, we're going to build 20% shared ownership and 40%, you know, um, you know, the London living, uh, London living rent and, you know, this bit here and this bit there. And the fact remains that all of the kind of um, housing programmes in London in the last 20 years, which have been so much about redeveloping, um, you know, the 100% social housing of the past, have resulted in there being less socially rented units than there were before. That 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 model has really not worked. And in the case of Croydon, I mean, they've literally bankrupted themselves trying to do a combination of sort of social democracy funded by property speculation. Um, and I would like to think that Croydon would now be a kind of cautionary example and go, well, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to play the market. And I'd like to think that the kind of failure of estate regeneration means that anything the GLA does would be 100% socially rented, as it, as it absolutely should be, you know, and as, as these things were literally from the 1890s until the 1980s, you know, it's not a revolutionary idea, it was what, what, was, what was once normal. You know, there are people in Khan's office who I would trust to understand that, and people in his office I would not trust to understand that. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support for more information. 
Um, okay, so our next item was an exclusive scoop in the AJ. It's all about the big reveal of the winning team in the competition held by developers Peabody and Endlease to select a visionary and strategic master planner for their £8 billion Thamesmead waterfront development. The, chief, the team chosen for the enormous 100 hectare project will be led by Prior and Partners and features London Alison Brooks Architects, led by Alison Brooks, JA Projects, set up by Jaden Ali and Turner Works, alongside Dutch Practices West 8 and Mark Kohler Architects. Both Brooks and Ali are trustees of Open City and prominent within architecture world in London and beyond. Ali was named in the prestigious AJ 40 Under 40 showcase of Rising Star Designers. The £8 billion Thamesmead Waterfront project will be the largest in Peabody's history. The competition encouraged collaborations with smaller, diverse practices and those with local knowledge. Twelve of the firms represented on the winning team are SMEs, ten employ fewer than 30 people and five are micro-businesses, employing fewer than 10 people. The enormous Thamesmead Waterfront development neighbours Peabody's ongoing £1.5 billion renewal of the Thamesmead estate, which started in 2014 and has seen parts of the iconic GLC development demolished for redevelopment. The latest project, which has been awarded, will focus on adjacent, partially undeveloped land and former landfill, and is expected to deliver thousands of new homes, along with commercial and leisure space, new green and blue landscaping, and river frontage. Um, so there are a lot of young practices and smaller firms on the winning Thamesmead Waterfront team. What does it say about the fact that these sorts of people are involved in the winning bid? Peabody tend to take architecture seriously, um, you know, which hasn't always been the case in Thamesmead since, you know, since the GLC was abolished. Um, if you look at the kind of replacement housing that was built at Tavy Bridge when that part was demolished, or if you look at the absolutely dreadful developers' housing and retail parks that have been built in the original kind of open spaces of the plan in the 90s and 2000s, you know, the list of architects that you've read out is obviously going to be vastly better than that. I suppose I would be interested to see if any of them had much engagement with Tennis Mead as a particular genius loco. You know, with it's it's a it's a very, very distinct place, you know, of kind of concrete and marshes and lakes. Um it has a kind of visual uh, and and kind of um, haptic quality, which is very different from a lot of the rest of London. According to the press release, at the centre of the team's approach is the idea that communities evolve from existing places and relationships, and at the heart of their philosophy is the need to understand, build on and grow the social capital that already exists at Thamesmead. Do you think this approach to co-design could create something unique that is both new and of Thamesmead at the same time? I mean, every architect, you know, will talk about the importance of community in their in their statement. Um, you know, it's the law. Um, I think it is literally the law, in fact, um, that, 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 that community engagement has to be kind of factored in some way. Um, but one of the interesting things about Thamesmead, if you're interested in kind of community engagement and what that can actually mean in architecture, is on the one hand, the enormous kind of um, amount of kind of community politics and engagement that's happened in the place 
over the years, which Valerie Wigfall writes about in her Social History of Thamesmead, but also in what people did to the original buildings. Um, it's a really odd place to kind of walk around in that the stuff that stayed council, or rather stayed social because it's been out of the hands of the council for a long time, um, you know, tends to have less window. They've kind of, these kind of cheap PVC windows have been put in and they actually block out a lot of the light. Whereas the stuff that's been right to bite, people have generally kept the wider kind of wooden framed windows with more glass, but have treated those wooden frames to make them look more Tudor. And so it's this weird thing that it's the only place I can think of in London where the right to buy flats on a modernist block look better than the kind of stuff that's remained social. And that kind of sense that people have over the years customised Thamesmead is actually a positive thing. I think it, with something that huge, it can't all look like it's, you know, hewn from one material. Um, and, you know, it would be interesting to see if some of that ethos, I guess, could be continued. But my main thing with it really is just looking at this huge site in a city that desperately lacks social housing and thinking like, why are we building more riverside condos? I mean, you know, already some of the new housing in Thamesmead has been has been found for sale in Hong Kong. Like, you know, the, the, why would you want to kind of build like a kind of another VNEB in Thamesmead? Why not use this as actually the showcase for what the mayor, you know, apparently wants to do, which is, you know, build social housing en masse again. Um, it just looks like these kind of old ideas just playing themselves out again and again and again. Open City recently launched its enormously popular Pocket London Printed Tour Guide series covering compelling architecture all around London. Owen, you kindly authored a fascinating illustrated map and guide on Thamesmead, which we will be publishing next month and available to both subscribers and through our online shop. Could you tell us a little bit more about the area and what you love or don't love about it? Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone could love all of it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, Tebsmead was kind of uh, planned in the mid-60s by the London County Council and taken over by the new Greater London Council and was intended to be a kind of um, self-contained new town within, within Greater London. It was built on MOD land, um, partly on land which was used by travellers. It still has a very large traveller community. I mean, one of the real pleasures of Thamesmead actually is wandering around concrete concrete walkways that have horses on them. You know, it's a it's it's it's, it's a good thing rather than the bad thing. Um, but I think that that um, that original idea, I suppose, kind of came sort of started at a moment of kind of great optimism and was executed sort of gradually more and more cheaply as time went on. But it was originally planned to be about 70% socially rented. So going to people that before that would have lived in places like, you know, kind of Peckham and New Cross, Elephant Castle and so on. Um, and the other kind of 30% as, um, you know, as, as just private housing. So I guess the kind of version of the social mix that people are into nowadays, but very, very different sort, you know, 70, 30 um, socially rented um, versus 30% private is the kind of thing we could only wish for from um, the Alliance of Peabody and Lendlease. Um, I found it very interesting that you referred to Peabody there as developer, <laughs> which, um, you know, the, the, the kind of realisation that that's what Peabody is now, is a developer. 
Um, but the, that kind of, you know, I think Thamesmead kind of declined quite a lot. Um, there's a kind of social history of it, which is which is really interesting on the kind of community organisations, which were very important there for a while. But the kind of original design got chipped away at about kind of 12, 15 years ago, um, with the kind of most photogenic bits being knocked down um, and replaced with rubbish. Um, and mostly Peabody have kind of continued that. The only really big difference is that what they've built or what they're proposing to build is of a higher quality than what was being built there in the 90s and 2000s, which was, not to put too fine a point on it, absolute dross. One of the main issues with the Thamesmead estate is the lack of transport links. In October 2016, the Mayor of London announced tentative plans for an extension of the Docklands Light Railway from Galleons Reach to Thamesmead. However, without any concrete plans in place for improved links, do you think that the development of the proposed thousands of new homes could add to existing problems of the estate? Or do you think that the new Crossrail link at Abbey Wood would be enough to transform connectivity? If you are in the south of the estate, where, you know, the Clockwork Orange bit is, um, or was increasingly, um, you know, you walked 10 minutes to Abbey Wood Station and then it took you to London Bridge in 20, 25 minutes. It's uh, remote and only the way Londoners can consider a place remote. You know, if you want to kind of look at a version of Thamesmead that's that's quite successful in, in those terms, you only have to look at something contemporary such as the Olympic, Vill Olympic Village in Munich, which is a remarkably similar design in lots of ways, you know, built around a metro station, um, which comparatively has thrived. And I think mainly because there's just not the same neurotic relation towards modernism and social housing that there has been here, the kind of notion that anything like that is a problem, you know, has not quite been as dominant. I mean, it, it's been a thing everywhere, but I think we had a particular kind of national nervous breakdown about it. Um, so, you know, there's, it's quite easy to see how it could have worked. Um, um, and that kind of, and it's really funny that they're kind of, um, you know, the kind of architecture that's been so celebrated if it's in Forest Hill or Highgate in the last 10 years. Um, and it's increasingly kind of listed and given coffee table books and, you know, and models and tea tiles. If it's in SC28, it's being knocked down and it's still being considered a, a, an obstacle to, to, to regeneration, so-called. As incidentally is, is the fact that it's, you know, a lot of it is overwhelmingly social housing. You know, we know that social housing is the thing that we actually need to get to get ourselves out of the mess we're in in London. And still we're going on about, ah, well, you see, it's difficult. It's a problem estate. What can we do about that? Um, rather than being like, oh, we did this thing and we're quite proud of it and we're going to do some more of it. So our next story appeared in the AJ this week, and it's all about this year's Serpentine Pavilion. The pop-up structure is erected each year in London's Kensington Gardens, forming part of the Serpentine Gallery's yearly Summer Pavilion programme. Designed by South African design practice Counterspace, the proposed structure, initially intended to be built last year but delayed due to the pandemic, was hailed as being one of Serpentine's greenest pavilion structures to date. The design incorporates both low-tech and high-tech approaches to sustainability, including low-carbon K-bricks. However, last week, one of the firms working on the project provoked a flurry of critical responses on Twitter after it announced the arrival of the mighty concrete pump on site, ready to pour a staggering 95 cubic metres of concrete for the temporary structure's foundations. 
A 2018 report from the think tank Chatham House found that one of concrete's key ingredients, cement, is responsible for a whopping 8% of global CO2 emissions. Furthermore, the epic, the epic concrete pour comes just a year after the Serpentine's artistic director, Hans Ulrich Obrist, announced that the gallery in its 50th year would respond to climate change by placing ecology at the heart of everything we do. Thomas Bryans of AJ 40 Under 40 Practice If Do said the use of such large amounts of concrete seemed to go against Obrist's pledge. He said... In a world where we need to be using far less concrete, designing a temporary pavilion with a massive concrete foundation cannot be the way forward. It's certainly not a new way of thinking and acting. ACOM, the engineering company working on the project, maintained that this extensive use of concrete was necessary for the health and safety of this public structure. However, critics have argued they could have pursued an alternative, lighter touch approach, as Um, as is being pursued by other pavilion designers around the world in response to the climate crisis. So, Owen, what's this all about? We are in the midst of climate crisis and the construction industry is a huge contributor to global CO2 emissions. Doesn't good contemporary design therefore have a massive obligation to be taking steps to reduce carbon footprints where possible? And with the size of the platform that the Serpentine Gallery has, shouldn't they be spearheading this movement? Yes, of course they should. Um... But listening to that description of how this happened, what it sounds most like to me is this is what happens with a design and build contract. You know, that the, and, and, and that makes it less a question of architecture in the Serpentine Gallery. I'm actually, I don't want to make any excuses for Hans Ulrich Obrist and his um, gigantic carbon footprint going around the world and interviewing artists. Um, you know, I... It does sound to me that, you know, this is that you probably will have had an architect here going like, here's our wonderful sustainable pavilion as designer. And then the actual builder, the contractor or what, however many different contractors you usually have in order to be able to put up a garden shed nowadays, um, you know, looking at it and going like bollocks to that, we're going to build it out of concrete. And there the focus really has to be on the construction industry and also the lack of control over construction that any public institution like the Serpentine Gallery or any firm of architects actually has over what happens. Um, and that's the thing that can be connected to some things much larger than, you know, that, 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 than this particular project, but also, you know, the, the, as the kind of Grenfell inquiry is making, making clear, this is stuff that, you know, has, has cost dozens of lives. You know, this system of, you know, spreading risk among a kind of group of, of contractors who do more or less what they like, who bend the law according to whatever the hell they like, with no serious regulation, um, and, you know, and, and, and always get their way. And, you know, their lobbyists and, tend to, you know, the, the people they lobby in government tend to support them. So this is really, I think, a story about, about you know, about ACOM and about, about control over construction, rather than about the morality of the architect. Yes. And then, but then I think bringing it back to the Serpentine Pavilion, which has to some degree been synonymous with forward thinking design. For example, the commission is famous for inviting new design talents to co- to complete their first project on UK soil. Um, does this lack of foresight or potentially, as you were saying, lack of control to the use of so much carbon intensive concrete signal that the pavilion is no longer keeping up pace with, with contemporary design or what's the Serpentine's relationship to what you've just said? I don't really know. I mean, I will be honest with you. 
you know, I, I once wrote an article for Icon magazine called I Hate the Serpentine Pavilion. Um, so, you know, it, it's not, it's not my idea of interesting architecture. I think it, it is a kind of, a kind of parlor game and, you know, of, of, of kind of follies that usually eventually end up in some oligarchs back garden. Um, I don't think of it as the forefront of any kind of architectural research and I tend to take quite a dim view of it. Um, but I, I, I don't really see in what ways the kind of discipline of architecture is, or, 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 or its social function has been in any interesting way kind of expanded or, or, or kind of improved by the Serpentine Pavilion. But by and large, it's a kind of thousand buildings to see before you die idea of architecture, which I think is really um, pernicious. Our final story was again covered in the AJ and follows the latest twist in the long-running court battle between Tate Modern and the residents of the gallery's neighbouring neo-Bankside development. Some inhabitants of the properties within the Rogers Sturk Harbour and Partners designed luxury flats who claim they have been deprived of their privacy due to overlooking by visitors to the Tate Modern's viewing platform have taken their case to the Supreme Court with a hearing scheduled for December. The original nuisance action was launched in 2017 by residents in the eight-year-old block who claimed that their human rights were being breached due to near-constant surveillance from tourists and other visitors to the gallery's extension, designed in 2016 by Herzog and Jamoran. In February last year, the residents lost a high court action, failing to force Tate Modern to close part of its viewing platform. The judge remarked that residents had created their own sensitivity by purchasing flats with floor-to-ceiling windows. That decision was reaffirmed by three Court of Appeal judges who refused to overturn the High Court ruling, but for different reasons. Terence Etherton, the Master of Roles, said that any ruling against Tate could have opened the floodgates to claims in every single case where planning permission is granted and there's a balcony overlooking. He also said, over the hundreds of years that the that the tort of nuisance has existed, there has never been a reported case in this country in which a court had found that overlooking by a neighbour constituted nuisance. So, Owen, what's this all about? How has the case reached the Supreme Court, implying that it raises a point of law of general public importance? Is this a good use of taxpayers' money? I mean, I just think about the astonishing amount of money these people must have to, to be taking this again and again and again to court. Um, I think because of the fact that, you know, they don't particularly like it up and, and you know, people that believe the system is designed specifically for them um, tend to get very, very angry when it turns out that sometimes the law is not specifically designed for their own piccadillos. But I think it could be seen as, as a wider, in a wider sense, as being part of um, something that's been happening in London and other kind of so-called global cities for a long time, which is this question of what happens when people who otherwise would have been appealed to to live in, you know, the stockbroker belt, live in the centre of the city. And we've all kind of seen that, I think, when, um, you know, everyone knows a story about their local nightclub or even sometimes pub being threatened of closure because people that have moved into the the new flats next door don't like the noise. And it's very much like, well, if you don't like, if you don't want to move somewhere, you know, like the, the ultimate example of that was people in the Elephant Castle moving to Elephant Castle to new shiny flats and complaining about the noise of the Ministry of Sound. And it's like, 
nobody in their right mind should be moving to the Elephant and Castle if they can't deal with with street noise. Like you're moving to somewhere like next to like two roundabouts that's deafening at all times of day. You know, and and, and it really is kind of based on this sort of the the, the, the th other thing of the Elephant and Castle is them complaining about the the noise of the wind turbines at the top of the, the strata apartment block, which means that they're now no longer running. So that the green wash behind that appalling building being built um, is now actually superfluous. Um, you know, that, that there's a sort of odd idea of what city life is. You know, one of the better things Jane Jacobs always said when people, when she was talking about Lewis Mumford, I think, insisting on the importance of privacy and why tenements were bad because they were close together and people could see each other is, you know, there's a very simple solution to this, which is to close the curtains. Um, and again, you know, sometimes Jane Jacobs was right. And in this particular case, she was, you know, she her point is correct. They can just close their bloody curtains. Um, and I, 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 you know, that the, if you're moving into a site, you know, next to the most popular art gallery probably on earth, you know, a short walk away from St. Paul, so one of the biggest tourist attractions on earth, in the biggest city in Europe, people are going to be able to see in your window sometimes. You know, if you cannot deal with that, you should not be living there full stop. You know, St. George's Hill is, you know, only, you know, half an hour away from Waterloo Station, you know, um, Penge and Godalming and Guildford and Walton on Thames all still exist. You know, they can move there. That's what they were built for. Um, so I find it incredibly frustrating. And it's a real sign that in many ways, this kind of like return to cities and return to urbanism masks a deep hatred of cities from a lot of these people. You know, if you can't deal with this, you can't deal with cities, I think. Oh, and thank you so much for coming on and being a guest for the London. Um we as ever love to get you on to talk about stuff with Open City. If audiences are interested to hear more about your work um, and other things that you are doing at the moment, where should they go? What should they do? They should uh, subscribe to Tribune, where I edit the culture section and where I have an online column every two weeks. And they should read uh, Red Metropolis, a book about uh, municipal socialism in London, which I published at the end of last year. Thanks, Owen. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.